The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts, and longtime China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society, and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? This year, all eyes are on the Chinese Communist Party's leadership as we're coming up to another National Party Congress. It's where President Xi is meant to be cementing his third term in power. But how much do we really know about this generation of communist leaders, the ones who might replace President Xi in the future? In this episode, in particular, I want to talk about their formative experiences. What were the things that impacted them and made them who they are as they were growing up? On this episode, I'll be joined by Professor Kerry Brown, who's at King's College London and author of a recent book on President Xi called Xi, A Study in Power. So he's an expert on the man. And also by Professor Steve Tang, who is a historian at SOAS. So Steve, I want to start with you. Can we look at the Politburo Standing Committee? Its, its average age is 67, which means that they would have all been teenagers when the Cultural Revolution started. So I want to start with that experience, which must be one of the most formative moments in their lives. For listeners who don't know, what was the experience like uh, for young people during the Cultural Revolution? Perhaps you could start with the early years, with the Red Guards. Well, the Cultural Revolution was an amazing time for the young people in China. Never did young people in China experience anything like the Cultural Revolution before or since then. They were being unleashed by order of the great Chairman Mao to break things, to struggle against old fogies who were revolutionaries, even if they were extremely senior people. They were given a license to rebel, and some of them, a lot of them, were then sent down to the countryside to learn from the peasants. And in all that experience, they were able to attempt and try things that your average teenager anywhere in the world would never have an experience to. And they will also have acquired some kind of sense of the reality of power. They know, or at least they learned, that they must say the politically correct thing. And then they must, first and foremost, protect number one, because nobody else is going to. I think different individuals draw different lessons from the Cultural Revolution. You will have some who became senior leaders today who will think that never again the Cultural Revolution or anything like that. You also have some, a few, at least Xi Jinping, who thinks that the Cultural Revolution was a wonderful thing. And the Red Guards then, so they were these school children, essentially, who were enlisted by the chairman in order to create a revolution. And what they did was often against the traditional Confucian authorities of, you know, teacher to students, because they would denounce their teachers, they would denounce their parents. 
Kerry, is it fair to say that what were, you know, this generation of party leaders, do you think they would have been Red Guards themselves? No, I mean, I actually looked at the 25 members of the current full Politburo and a number of them were born in 1950 to, I think the youngest is 1963, that's Hu Chunhua. So that's quite a kind of big period. The older ones would certainly be sent down youths. And some of them would have been later kind of, you know, campaigns. The sent down youth campaign was really launched in 68. And I think Xi Jinping was actually sent to Xianxi province in 60, early, very early 1969. And so their, their experiences of the Cultural Revolution are quite diverse. I mean, the very young ones would have a memory of it, like you'd have a memory of like being at infant school. And then the older ones would have a memory of being uh, you know, kind of in campaigns and things and maybe involved with Red Guard groups. So I couldn't find any explicit mention of that. If you think of a Feld leader like Bo Silai, I mean, there were all these, these rumours that he'd been an extremely activist Red Guard and denounced his father, an elitist leader, Bo Yibo, when he was at Tsinghua University in the 1960s. And in fact, I believe that Xi Jinping was... I mean, he was at Tsinghua University later. No, I mean, Hu Jintao, Xi Jinping's predecessor, was also at Tsinghua around about that time. But there's no association with him and Red Guard. So I think it's very variable. I, I mean, the Cultural Revolution was a very complicated movement and people's experience of it, I think, was very, very variable, which this group of people kind of testify to. And they're, they're very different experiences and what they did. Steve, it's partly that because somewhere like Beijing, for example, would have had more of the epicentre of the revolution, of the movement. And if you were growing up elsewhere in China, perhaps you weren't affected so much. And just give us this flavour, because I think in the West, it's often easy to think of the Red Guards as what epitomises the Cultural Revolution. But how prevalent was that movement to join for your average young person during that time? It was, in fact, uh, countrywide you might have greater intensities in places like Beijing or Shanghai or Tianjin or Guangzhou. But even in other places, the cultural revolution mostly reached a bit less in the minority-heavy border regions of China. But generally, young people were able to travel across the country. The railway system was being required to provide free travel for young people who went around to see the country and learn about the revolution. A cultural revolution interrailing, a rail card. It was a kind of free interrailing for cultural revolutionaries. But then that was the intention of Mao Zedong, that he was going to use the cultural revolution in part to raise a new generation of revolutionaries who are beholden to him but not to the party. And that's why you can have other very senior leaders of the Communist Party who could be the subject of struggles and beatings and public humiliation. And yet, everybody were supposed to be pupils of the great chairman. And people took advantage of that and make that trouble and do a lot of things that they would not otherwise have been able to do without the freedom of the Cultural Revolution. Mm. And you already mentioned being the sent-down youths. Can you tell us about that? Because by a few years into the Cultural Revolution, that kind of Red Guard fervour was getting a bit too much, and Mao actually had a different policy for young people. Well, for the sent-down youth, a large part of that intention was to send the 
somewhat educated urban young people into the countryside to have a taste of what life is like in the countryside, and so they are supposed to learn from the peasants. But when they get to the countryside, they probably won't that much. They really want to learn in terms of intellectual learning, learning in in the sense of what we think of as schools. The learning was about the hard reality of how harsh life could be in the countryside in China, and how back-breaking labor were required of the peasants, and how, in spite of their youth, they were. Totally unprepared for the intensity of hard labor that was normal, routine, daily requirements of life in the countryside. How incredibly incompetent they were, compared to the illiterate, dirty, unhygienic peasants who were able to produce crops that they couldn't, who were able to carry heavy loads that they couldn't. But yet, you will have some of those really smart ones who will find niche in the countryside, and be able to develop their leadership skills, and in some cases win over the local peasant communities and make something for themselves. I think Xi Jinping is one of those people who managed to do that, and that perhaps affect how he remembers his Shandong experience. Mm. Well, Kerry, let's. Talk about Xi Jinping's sent down experience because in your book you quote him saying of that time later on he says later in life whenever I ran into difficulties I would think of that period how could I not carry on now when I could work under those extremely difficult conditions so building him this determination well, at least he wants us to think that yeah I mean the politicization of society from 1966 when the Cultural Revolution started you know as part of a kind of well. Political movement, the cultural movement, was a very complicated phenomena. I mean, the one thing it did do is, I think, for the first time, really in modern Chinese history, there was a shared belief system, even though people struggled with how to define that. You know, kind of Mao,、uh, Mao Zedong thought, you know, was something you had to embrace and have in your most intimate life in in many ways. And I suppose, secondly, the kind of practices, the things that people did every day. Were kind of mandated by the movement. You know, the schools and colleges closed, and so someone like Xi Jinping basically ended their formal education around about sixty-seven, sixty-eight. I mean, he was in an elite school next to Zhongnanhai in Beijing, and then was quite a young kind of member of this initial tranche of sent-down youths. So, I mean, a lot of the accounts of this in Chinese are. Dubious because they're issued today, and they kind of reinforce this idea of Xi Jinping, the man who has eaten bitterness. You know, he's chukul. I think the Chinese phrase is, you know, he's really, you know, kind of earned the right to have the position he's got today. I think、uh, Li Kuan Yew, the late leader of Singapore, called him, you know, Asia's Nelson Mandela because of the way he'd <laughs> suffered at this time. But I mean, it did give a very distinctive worldview to people, and I think in looking at the accounts, at least I use in in this book on Xi. I do sort of appreciate that it's it's definitely a distinctive generational culture that the people who remember this before 1976, when it broadly ended, and the people afterwards who don't remember it are very different in their worldview. 
And one of the things about the accounts of his colleagues or contemporaries at that time is, you know, the idea of, you know, just getting off a train and then being taken to various parts of this locality around Yunnan. I mean, it's quite a big area. And being sort of put on these kangs, these brick kind of thing, you know, beds. And the thing that kind of is most striking is their complaints about being bitten all night by mosquitoes and then having as, you know, Beijingers to get used to this very different diet. And that's kind of quite a radical change, especially as your parents, you know, aren't around. And for Xi Jinping, his father had been absent since 1961 because of political issues in Beijing. So this is a pretty unstable environment to have your adolescent years when already you're going through a lot of different changes in your life. So I think that's instability is sort of impacted on the psychology of this generation and made them maybe respond in the ways they do to both domestic issues and the outside world. Just on his father, Xi Zhongxun is one of those early communist revolutionaries. You know, he was with Mao when Mao was exiled to Yan'an. You know, he was vice premier of China before his downfall, but then he did have a downfall, and that was before the Cultural Revolution. So Xi, Xi Jinping is what we can call a Grand Arde, a princeling, you know, as close to communist royalty as you can get. What would that upbringing have done to him? Because not everyone who is a leader in China now grew up in that kind of elite outcome, but also then that disgrace that came. Kerry, what what do you think? We are all very interested in the family backgrounds of current political elite figures. And by political elite figures, I mean people who are in the Central Committee. And I think it, it is important. I mean, family is important in Chinese society generally, and it orientates people where there are so many other networks. It's It's a really strong, I think, bond. But there's quite a few people, you know, I mentioned Bo Xilai earlier. And, you know, I mean, his elite background was far more stellar. I mean, Bo Yibo was probably a more significant leader than Xi Jongsun, although Xi Jongsun was a very significant leader. I mean, the impact of having your first part of your childhood, so from 1953 to broadly 1961, you know, kind of fairly secure with your father being an important member of the propaganda kind of organization, you know, kind of vice premier dealing with culture, I mean, important position, and then completely removed. This must be a sort of, you know, very disorientating, because really, after that, I can only find, you know, a couple of records of Xi Jinping having contact with his father, though I believe there probably was more contact, it couldn't have been nothing. And I mean, his, his mother, who's still alive, Xi Xing is, is obviously you know, she continued to kind of be the matriarch for the family. And I suppose that accounts for the very strong bond he has with his mother to this day. The other thing is this kind of story of one of his sisters or his half-sister, because Xi Jiangshu had been married before, you know, he married Xi Jinping's mother, kind of committing suicide in the Cultural Revolution. And this is all very impactful and disruptive stuff. So I think for each individual, it had a very different impact. All you can say is that it was a period when people, I think, did feel insecure. And the party, in a way, is sort of this kind of almost this patriarchal entity that people feel they were protected by. I think the psychology of people's relationships with Mao in some ways is strange because that he spared people and was therefore, in their minds, merciful to them. meant, as I said in this book, that Xi Jinping is a born-again communist. He was spared he is grateful to the man who left him alone. 
Mm. Steve, is that how you read the paradox? Because I do think there is a paradox in, in that he has such a disruptive childhood, which, to which no little amount of that is because of Chinese Communist Party. Yet, Kerry says in his book, you know, Xi treats the party as a faith. You know, how is it that he came out of that period becoming more fervent a communist? I think something else that we need to bear in mind is that for what you described as the core of the red second generations, the real princelings, the offsprings of senior first-generation Communist Party leaders, they have a sense that they are the real second generation of the Communist Party. They don't quite necessarily look at it in the way that we have been looking at mm-hmm. political generations in China. So that Xi Jinping is now the fifth-generation leader. There's much more of a sense that they are the generation who should be inheriting from Mao. And Xi Jinping fundamentally takes a view that he is picking up from Mao. In between, it was an interregnum with your Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. I don't see Xi Jinping paying that much respect to Deng Xiaoping. If anything, he likes to play that down. He would be seeing that he, having inherited it, he is the person who is going to make China great again in a way that even Chairman Mao had not managed to do that. Mm. And Kerry, as Steve has already said, you know, there was this incredible freedom to the time because schools and universities were closed for essentially years, some pretty formative years of these of these children's lives. What impact did that have? Because essentially, if you're not going to school, I mean, I, I, this is, there is a wonderful film called In the Heat of the Sun, Yang Guan which is all about the kids growing up in Beijing during that time and, you know, chasing girls, trying out smoking, mocking street battles, all that kind of stuff, instead of incredibly politicized or, or, or educational things. So essentially, a lot of people didn't get a formal education. Yeah, I mean, from 68 till around about, 73, 74, I mean, schools weren't really functioning. Xi Jinping went to Tsinghua to do, I think, engineering from, I think, for 74, 75 as part of this scheme. There's some controversy over this because it was really a kind of, you know, this is an elite university, but it's sort of always been rumoured that this was a bit easier for someone like him because they had connections and things, even at that time that was definitely frowned on. I mean, it's kind of interesting if you think him and his sense of you know entitlement people often refer to this i think there's a wikileaks where the american embassy interviewed someone who'd been linked with him at this time and they said you know he had a strong sense that these were the custodians of the party their mm-hmm. family you know meant that they had the right to be where they are and people that know and have met xi jinping you know as sort of foreign leaders have commented a lot i noticed on his confidence and this sort of sense that, you know, he kind of feels like this is his entitlement to be where he is. But the weird thing is, if you look at the people who are talked of as being potential one day successors, and there are not many of them, and it's not easy to sort of pin these down. Just look at their ages. Someone like Hu Chunhua or Cheng Minger or not so much Ding Suixiang, but Ding Suixiang has been very closely associated with him. These people definitely don't have elitist backgrounds. I mean, they're from quite humble backgrounds. Wang Yang, who's often also, I mean, he's a bit older, but talked as a you know very capable leader and he's in the standing committee now, humble background. So if you look at the people around him, there's not 
many who have the same kind of stellar royal background. And I wonder what that says about his real attitude to these elites. I mean, it seems like it's okay for him to, you know, kind of be with his sense of entitlement, but not that people around him should have it. And maybe, you know, this issue with the great battle between him and Boisilai was probably about this issue of, you know, within the elites, there are big, big kind of differences and that you can't have two tigers on the mountain, basically. You know, you just can't have it. And so I think that this probably explains why the people around him don't share this sort of elitist background or, or not, not anything in the same sort of league as he does. Steve, when we're talking about eliteness, then, do we also mean out of touch? Because when we're talking about being the sent down youth, I mean, that kind of on the ground experience is something that a lot of politicians in the West or the East don't, do not have at all. You know, Boris Johnson has never worked a farm field in his life. Do you think that has translated into people feeling, you know, really, as, as Kerry says, eating bitterness, really understanding what it is that poor people in the country live through? Does that translate into their policy making later on? I think it's a very logical point to make that it is something that we would expect it to be the case. And I am, in fact, somewhat sceptical that, that it may actually be the case. The reality is that it was a very, very, very long time ago when Xi Jinping had the experience of the bitterness of the countryside. He is now remembering it, those experiences with rosy glasses. He is, as I think Kerry once described him, as chairman of everything. He is surrounded by an increasingly small group of trusted advisors, and he doesn't really now have much of a sense of what real life in Chinese cities, towns, villages or countryside is like. Mm. He hasn't been back to the every man restaurant for his dumplings since he first tried within, <laughs> within a year or two of him becoming leader. Now, all these are gone. So his capacities to relate to the kind of problems that everyday Chinese persons living in the 2020s will have to face, I think it just isn't there. I don't think he can be more in touch with everyday life in Beijing, let alone China as a whole, than Boris Johnson is with that yeah. in this country, outside of perhaps his clubs. Kerry? Yeah, I think Steve, Steve makes a, a good point, really. In fact, if Xi Jinping wanted to just go to a normal place, he couldn't do it. I mean, I, I think Rowan Callick, a journalist, British Australian journalist, said in a book about the party a few years ago, when you go through that door and become a significant provincial or national leader, you will never stay in a hotel where other people are staying, you know, next to you. You'll always be in very privileged places. You will never get on public transport. You will never get a plane which other people from the public are getting on. In fact, you'll have a wall around you. And I think that's much more, I mean, you could say it's true in American and other politics, maybe, but there's no way you can get through that barrier if you're a member, if you're a Lao Bai Xing, you know, a member of the public. And in fact, I think when Wen Jiabao was premier, you know, in Hu Jintao's period, one person, a petitioner, did get through and presented him with a petition. And this was a massive problem because then he was obliged to do something. 
So it's absolutely crucial that they are kept apart from the public and the public are kept apart from them. It's really, really, I think, quite extreme. It's fascinating because I think in Chinese, the Chinese mindset, as far as we can say, there is a Chinese mindset. There is this idea of the emperor going in amongst the people, you know, this waifu sifa, you know, kind of secretly hiding who you are to see how normal people are living, how local officials are being corrupt or whatever it is. And I think it's interesting because clearly that's still important because in the law of these leaders, they have to go out for these photo ops to eat the dumplings, to also, you know, say how much they were in touch with the people during the Yan years which carry a point that you make in your book that you know this is part of the story about Xi Jinping that he is in touch I wonder Kerry what, what do you think why is that it's still important for them to put forward that perspective even though there is probably not true well so the story always was that because of social media they don't physically go amongst the people but I remember being told by a Chinese journalist a few years ago that every day they get on their computers in Zhongnanhai and they go onto social media and that's how they see you know, what's happening in the public. Now, of course, interestingly, with lockdowns in Shanghai and all this kind of anger that's building up in China and incredible, you know, control of what goes on social media, it seems like they can't even get an insight into what the public think there too. I mean, I did come across one of the, um, I think it's Tai Chi, um, the current party secretary of Beijing, sort of runs his own Weibo account or did run his own Weibo account. And, you know, apparently this has got 10 million followers and, you know, he kind of goes and sort of asks people's opinions. But I, I sort of can't imagine you would be able, particularly with the registrations that you have to do now in China, kind of just rock into a conversation with a you know, Politburo leader and say, I think you're doing a terrible job. I mean, it's not going to happen. <laughs> so it's, it, this is a very big enigma, what information they actually get about what is happening And it's probably got worse because the controls are so much stricter now. And the paradox is that probably the very, very few people that tell them anything that might be vaguely real are or used to be foreign leaders who kind of at least could say, you know, there's this problem and that problem. It's really tough to think of how officials or on social media and other people, particularly in Xi Jinping's era, are able to be that candid because the costs, if you are candid, are really high now, really, really high. Yeah, and that's something that I look at in a recent article of mine talking about Shanghai's lockdown and social media censorship, where I found that actually there are millions of analysts employed by both um, the government and the private sector who just literally trawl through social media to get the next trends as well. On that point about being in touch with the public, Kerry, the CCP also draws a lot of its top talent from regions, by which I mean party secretaries are sent to different provinces, there are people who cut their teeth on frontier lands. Xi Jinping himself spent years outside of the capital. How does that work? Is it something that the party sees merit in to have that regional knowledge? Well, it's certainly been the norm for the last 30 years. I mean, Jiang Zemin had come from Shanghai, and then he'd previously been in, I think it was Jilin province, Shandong province. Hu Jintao famously had been in a lot of Western provinces and then in Tibet, you know, and uh, Xi Jinping had spent 15, 16 years in Fujian, five years in Zhejiang, and then I think seven or eight months in Shanghai. I mean, I think the assumption is you've got to kind of learn how to be a ruler, and in provinces, some of them are massive. Hunan province is nearly 100, well, more than 100 million people. Sichuan province is about the same. The second is that they can kind of basically see what your ability is in building networks in places where you're often an outsider. 
I mean, this is from imperial times. You send the key leader from outside, although that's for some of these leaders no longer the case. And I suppose the final thing is that there aren't that many big, big jobs in Beijing. I mean, ministerial positions mm. are not really kind of the key ones in many ways. The provincial party secretaries, of whom I think there are about five on the you know Politburo, are really powerful people. So I think that is the structural justification. And, you know, it kind of has meant that the last three core leaders have been from strong provincial backgrounds. And that's given them the kind of track record that meant that they could then be trusted to sort of have the the final crown jewel of being the central leader. Steve, one other way that people are out of touch or potentially out of touch in this generation is that a lot of them have just been politicos since the 19, I don't know, 70s, because that's normally when they join the party, when they start going up the party ladder for Xi Jinping, as well as for other people. And maybe the one, one of the few exceptions to this is Wang Huning, who is often dubbed the brain of, of whatever president is in power at the time, because he was actually an academic until the 1990s, at which point he started climbing the ladder. So what does that do to your mindset? Because in between 1970 and now, China has gone through an incredible change, not least driven by the private sector, and none of these people have any experience of that. Well, Wang Huning is a very interesting person to take into account here. He was quite a recognised professor before he was picked by Zhang Jimin to go to Beijing. And his colleagues at Fudan were very proud that it had happened. But after... Wang Huning moved to Beijing. He cut off his links with his former colleagues. Basically, he decided that he really would like to be a party man rather than stay on as an academic or as a kind of interface between academia and the party apparatus. Now, he clearly was right in his own way and in terms of his career progression, He's gone further than any professor had ever gone in the Chinese system in terms of the reach of power. But he, I think, does not understand what has happened in Chinese academia since he left Fudan for Zhongnanhai. And he doesn't want to know. Mm. Kerry, can I get your thought on that question as well in terms of how much do you know what's going on in e-commerce companies or how much do you know what's going on in the stock exchange that kind of stuff you know it's we talk in the uk about career politicians right and these are the epitome of those well i mean you can know and i probably i've been to alibaba's headquarters in hangzhou and you know it's the great gold box of information on what chinese people are selling and buying and i mean this is what everyone wants to get hold of i mean you can know a lot but what do you understand i mean how is this interpreted I mean, the interesting thing about this leadership, I mean, there are two things. One is if you wanted a realization of Plato's dream in the Republic, of philosophers becoming kings, you kind of got it. I mean, these are a bunch of philosophers, right? They talk like, you know, philosophical people rather than administrators. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, I think it's all about, you know, this core issue of identity and identity politics and how... It's not the sort of enlightenment project of, you know, rationalizing, quantifying, being positivist. It's really about what you feel. And therefore, you know, you can have endless information, but how do you kind of feel about that? And what do you kind of, you know, this idea of Chinese identity being so uniform and strongly asserted? I think that's at the core of the fight in Hong Kong. You know, you've got
got to have this sense of Chinese identity, be proud of it, and don't be disloyal to it. In Xinjiang, I mean, I read an excellent study by Michael Clark and others of the issue there. Again, no compromise. Yeah, might be ethnic minorities. You might be Muslims. You might be whatever. You've got to embrace Chinese identity with a capital C and a capital I. And it goes back beyond communism to Confucianism. It's deep. And, you know, I think this is really the sort of core element of, of this leadership, that it's sort of mm. not a rational project. It's definitely the same kind of identity politics that we see in America, in Europe. And therefore, it is intrinsically, unpredictably where it might end up, but it will continue to assert the importance of identity. And Wang Huning has been the great architect of that, not just in the last 10 years, but in the last 25 or 30. Mm. And they're all men, they're all Han. They're all men. Well, yeah. they're not all men because Sun Chenlan is around, you know, she's broken the glass ceiling, um, <laughs> but mostly, mostly men and all Han. And yeah, coming from quite similar in some ways, backgrounds. And Steve, can I ask you a question about being institutionalized? Because what inspired me to do this episode was my conversation with the academic Wang Feng from the University of California in Irvine. And he was talking about how in the 90s, the communist leaders themselves drank their own Kool-Aid, drank the Kool-Aid of the previous generations, the propaganda about the one-child policy. And that's why it took so long for them to use her. Presumably, that's what happens when you grow up in a one-party apparatus for almost half a century. Oh, they definitely believe in their own propaganda. We are now talking about a generation of leaders who grew up after the Communist Party had gained power and after the Communist Party has set historical narrative, something that Xi Jinping has now come up with a new concept called historical nihilism, which means that anybody who tries to challenge or contradict the official party version of history will have committed a crime. So it will be a criminal offence to say to members of the Chinese Communist Party that the Communist Party of China historically was the strongest advocate for Taiwan's independence. And you could even go back to the Sixth Party Congress, which was held in Moscow in 1928, where you will find documentation that prove that, going beyond just the records of foreign journalists like Agus No, to whom Chairman Mao famously said that in the start of the uh, Sino-Japanese War, that the policy of the Communist Party ultimately is to support the people of Taiwan and Korea to achieve their independence. And that is a commitment the Communist Party of China would make. Now, these are all, you know, Chinese government records. You cannot say that. So your generation of leaders from Xi Jinping himself down don't actually know that. Because nobody can say it to them or even present those historical documents to him without risking having committed the heinous crime of historical nihilism. So you have a situation where they do believe in a lot of their own propaganda. And the same thing, somewhat similar, will be remembered by a lot of people in terms of the, the Great Leap Forward. Sorry, I need to correct myself. The people who actually lived through the, the Great Leap Forward 
would remember the reality even if they cannot say it. But for the generation of people who grew up as toddlers or very, very young children who were not living in the parts of China that faced severe starvation, they would just believe in the party's version of the three difficult years when harvest got into difficulties because of challenges in climate and weather and conditions and all kinds of things which were not the responsibility of the party. When historical record will show that in terms of the climate of those three years, there was nothing untowards. Mm. Crops failed because of party policy, not because of weather conditions. They would not know. So they will believe in their own version of history. And in your terms, drink their own kueh. <laughs> Can I quickly, briefly pick you up on one thing you said about Taiwan? Just to check, was Mao in support of Taiwan independence because of a kind of Marxist anti-imperialism idea that, that people should be self-governing? Was that why? Well, it was the policy of the Third Communist International, the Comintern, that all oppressed people, colonial people, should be supported yeah. to achieve their independence. Mm-hmm. And because Japan was the colonial power of Taiwan for 50 years from 1895 until 1945, so it was simply something that was the policy of the Third Communist International that Mao completely embraced. Mm. You have here really, in a sense, raised the other interesting Kool-Aid that they regularly drink, the signification of Marxism-Leninism. Mm. In fact, the Communist Party of China existed as the China chapter of the Kuomintern for most of its early years, pretty much nearly until the, well, in fact, until the Third Communist International was wound up in the 1940s. And the party came to power with massive assistance, both military and economic, from the USSR. It was not the mythical rifle plus millet that Chairman Mao used to defeat the Guomindang military. The Mm. PLA or the Chinese Red Army used huge amount of artillery very effectively from the middle to the later stage of the Chinese Civil Wars to win power. Yeah. Kerry, I want to bring you back to Wang Huning and draw a comparison with Xi Jinping. And I don't want to sound elitist here, but my question is, is Xi Jinping actually that smart? By which I mean, <laughs> you're rolling your eyes at me, but hear me out, hear me out. Wang Huning has, you know, this amazing career as an academic. Li Keqiang studied law at Peking University. You've got other people who have had very stellar careers at top universities. You mentioned there that Xi Jinping was also at Tsinghua University, but you kind of went over this, this you know, rumours of having the Guanxi, having networks to get him in, because he was part of this Gong Nongbing Xue Yuan scheme, in this work peasant soldier scheme. A, he's not a worker or a peasant or a soldier, so how did he get onto that? And B, that scheme is inherently unmeritocratic, right? Because it was a more of a positive discrimination kind of thing to get different people from different class backgrounds on. So... Do we know anything about how smart this man is? Is he actually that smart? I, I mean, I, I've met him yet once in 2007 when he was briefly party secretary of Shanghai. And I've sort of got a memory of a very typical 
you know, sort of provincial or high level leader who kind of was well briefed and said the right thing and was quite avuncular. As I say, since then, of course, he's become a different kind of character, at least in terms of public image. I don't know. I mean, politicians, do they have to be smart? I mean, if only smart people succeeded at politics, we would not end up with the leaders we've got in Britain or probably in America (laughs) or elsewhere. But they do have to be good politicians and they have to be good politicians within their system. And so self-evidently, I think that Xi Jinping is an effective politician in his system. Now, because of all of the antagonisms towards the Chinese political system, towards China geopolitically and all the rest of it, to say that Xi Jinping is an effective politician is sometimes quite antagonizing for some. But, I mean, he is. Mm. I mean, he clearly is. He has managed to, in ways that have surprised many, and I mean, surprise is important for politicians, cleared away almost everything around him. I mean, as I say at the end of this book, you know, the stage has sort of weirdly become clear. It's only him sitting there now. We're moving into a Congress later this year, the 20th, where it is most unlikely that we're going to see a strong sign of any successor. And this is a big, big disruption. And I I think that's very unlikely. You know, this sort of very complicated story of 1.4 billion people with all of their diversity, with the incredible complexity of the world now, with the complexity of its economy, has become a story about one figure. That is effective politics, even if it's not particularly pleasant politics. So, I mean, it might not be that he has a high IQ. I mean, I'm sure his IQ is okay. I mean, I'm sure, you know, he's not an idiot. But I mean, in terms of political IQ, if you can kind of create a thing like that, I think he's very effective. And finally, I mean, politicians, what are politicians? I mean, I think Max Weber said that they were magicians or warlords. Mm. And I think we're in the age of magicians, politicians as magicians. You know, Putin is a warlord, but that hasn't ended well, right? Or it looks like it's not going to be ending well. So Xi Jinping is a sort of magician in creating these sorts of, you know, symbols and images and the idea of the China dream. And these are all very vague, the Belt and Road. But they do fulfill a function because they do the most key alchemy, which is to create simplicity from complexity. And I think that's the core job of a Chinese leader, to create simplicity from what is intrinsically an incredibly complicated historical, social and political story. And I think that's what he does. He is the simplifier. He doesn't Mm. like ambiguity and he doesn't obviously like complexity although China is a complex place. So that's, I think, what he does. Mm. And Steve, just to mention Wang Huning again, not that I'm a massive fan or anything, but I think it's an interesting foil for the question I'm about to ask, which is just about this generation's international experience. Do they have much? Are they cosmopolitan? Because when we consider Mao Zedong's lack of international experience compared to Deng Xiaoping or Zhou Enlai's international experience, I feel that you can see there's a difference in the cosmopolitan outlooks and how they deal with foreign leaders, for example. Wang Huning, I mentioned him because he spent six months in America, which sounds like not a lot, but more than really a lot of what other Chinese leaders have done, and certainly Xi as well. So do you think that matters? Does that come into things? I think it certainly matters. The fact that some of the top-level Chinese leaders have now spent some time in foreign countries. I mean, you have Wang Huning, and in fact, you also had Xi Jinping, who spent a couple of months in Iowa, which was also the place where I think Wang Huning spent a few months when he was doing his initial field work in the United States. 
the issue here really is that what kind of lessons they are drawing from the experience of their foreign travel, study or living and working situations. I think we have, in the case of Wang Huning, the book that he published after he spent his six months in the United States. It's been sort of noticed again as America versus America, which in some ways were very perceptive of some of the negative sides of American society. But it's also a very one-sided view of American society. The United States is such a complex place with so many different dimensions. You have Huang Wuning seeing one particular dimension quite perceptively, but not apparently acknowledging many of the other dimensions of American society and the United States as a country. I mean, nowhere, for example, do we hear either from Huang or other Chinese leaders the key, other key lessons that one can easily draw from the experience of the mm. United States. One could either refer to the Pearl Harbor of December 1941 or September 11th attacks and how the United States, when under attack, would respond, how the Americans would come together. Again, that is only one dimension of American society, and I don't want to say that that is what America is. But we will need to have that nuances and the breadth and the depth of understanding really to be able to have the confidence that the top-level Chinese leaders will be able to contextualize their policy towards the United States in a way that is appropriate and well-nuanced and effective in getting what needs to be achieved. Having a very one-sided view and understanding, partial understanding of the United States potentially can be even more dangerous than not understanding it. You don't know. You will ask somebody who does. If you think you know, when you don't know very much, mm. it's a much more dangerous place to be in. This actually leads very nicely on to the next question about the next generation of political leaders in China, as far as we can say, because presumably people who are coming up now will be experiencing reform and opening. They will be traveling much, much more when they're younger, maybe even studying abroad. Does that matter or will it matter, Kerry, do you think? I mean, obviously we don't know for sure, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, whether or not that kind of Western education, that kind of, and maybe COVID is a breaking point in the kind of cos- how cosmopolitan modern Chinese have become. But certainly from you know 1990 to maybe 2020, there were so many Chinese people going all over the world all of the time. Do you think the next generations could be more cosmopolitan? Is that a good thing? Well, it depends what you mean by cosmopolitan. I mean, I think we're living in a period where there's a big backlash against globalization and the idea that being local is being good. You don't like citizens from nowhere. So I don't know whether the big returnee kind of population of the last 30 years, which is millions now, I think it's about sort of three, three and a half million, you know, this is going to have a big impact in domestic Chinese politics because people who had been educated abroad give very variable accounts of how that education these Mm. days is valuable back in China. 
Look, I mean, I think if we look at where we were a decade ago, just before Xi Jinping came to power in you know 2012, we kind of had lots of clarity on you know there will be a succession. Although it looked a bit rickety at some point, it was always pretty certain. And who the figures were, you know, there are only a few figures, but yeah, they were definitely figures. Now, of course, no real clues. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier these figures: Hu uh, Chunhua, Cheng Minger, who you know, kind of, and then Li Chang, who actually is kind of Hong Kong. He's got a, a one degree from Hong Kong University in business, ironically. Mm. You know, the party secretary of Shanghai. So maybe what's happening in Shanghai at the moment has made him a little less likely to be pushed up. The point is, there's not a huge number of people in this potential kind of elite top elite leadership pool. I mean, you know, it's really, really small. And you'd have thought that there would be a little more clarity over who is really well placed. If you look at the current 25 members of the Politburo, in theory, 14 can continue because they'll be under the age of or about 68 at the end of this year. So, you know, they can continue if that if that is still kept, but that might not be kept. And that includes Li Keqiang, actually, who was born in 1955. And in the standing committee of seven, you know, maybe four can continue. Are these people able to occupy the position that Xi Jinping has created were he either to vacate it or move aside? It's very hard because he's created this persona and this or it, it has been created for him and by him and with him, this sort of all-encompassing persona, which is really, really hard to sort of, you know, move into. Not like Hu Jintao, who, who was kind of the man with no face, who just sort of slipped out and, you know, no one really kind of worried about filling his shoes. This is a very, very kind of big structural problem. The bottom line, though, is Xi Jinping is 70 in 2023. He cannot continue forever. He is mortal, alas. You know, we have to tell the Politburo. So there must, there's got to be a plan at some point. It just You know, when is that plan going to become apparent? Steve, can I put you on the spot as well and give your prediction for what will characterize the next generation of Chinese leaders? Oh, I think that's actually very easy. The next generation leader will be shaped by Xi Jinping. The core of the next generation of leaders, if we use generation in the sense we have been using of 10 years being a political generation, there is no doubt the next 10 years whoever comes up will have to play by the rules set down by Xi Jinping. Before the 19th Party Congress in 2017, the Politburo Standing Committee was essentially a committee of equals, and the General Secretaries was first among equals by a bit of distance, but essentially still first among equals. Since the 19th Party Congress, Xi Jinping is now the boss. The rest of the Politburo Standing Committee members have to write an annual report to Xi Jinping. And the dynamics completely change. So even if Xi Jinping should decide to completely change the membership of the Politburo Standing Committee apart from himself at the 20th Party Congress, whoever are being picked to fill those places, Mm. will have to think what the boss wants and what the boss will be happy to tolerate and work within those parameters. It matters very little 
even if among those six people to be picked, somebody happens to have a liberal arts education from a liberal arts college, whether it's in the United States or the United Kingdom, who believes in freedom and democracy and human rights, that person will toe the line, as required by the core leader of the Communist Party. Otherwise, that person is on the chopping board. Nobody who is willing to accept a promotion to the Politburo Standing Committee will remotely take a risk on something like that. Somebody who would would never have been picked in the first instance. But that is what they said about Xi as well, isn't it? Mm. Well, they miscalculated about Xi Jinping. They thought Xi Jinping would be more effective as a leader than Hu Jintao. I mean, there was a sense that the party was drifting a bit. But there was also an expectation or a calculation, a misconception, that Xi Jinping was somebody who would go along with others, forgetting that the system itself allowed the man in the hot seat to change. The system in place in China before Xi Jinping became leader was one that was meant for a collective leadership. Mm. But it's also a system that has nothing institutionally to stop the top boy to become a strong man leader. And that's exactly what Xi Jinping did when he became leader. Well, on that cheerful note, Steve Tang and Kerry Brown, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers, wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.